This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? I hope to finish this series up soon. So tonight, I want to cover at least the last two murders and their arrest. So when we last left our anti-heroes, Ian and Myra, it was 1964, and they had just killed their third victim, Keith Bennett. Now, remember I mentioned David Smith. That was Maureen's boyfriend, who had had quite a criminal past himself. And his record actually started at age 11 when he stabbed somebody. And Ian was aware of this. So he was kind of sniffing at David as a potential partner to use in his gang activities, meaning robberies and other crimes. And he always had this fantasy about bringing him into their murderous activities. So on August 15th of 1964, Maureen and David got married. Dave was only 16, which I think is really young to get married. And nobody in the family, in Maureen's family, liked David, so none of them went to the wedding. But afterwards, Ian and Myra took them to the lakes to celebrate. And Ian, as always, has an ulterior motive. He was kind of courting Dave because he wanted him to get into their little group of crime. And during this trip, Ian and David were talking about the various crimes they had committed. I think it was kind of like... Uh, you know, trying to one-up each other. Well, you know, one time I did this, and then one time I got arrested for this, and blah, 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 and probably half of it was lies. But they went to a hotel that night, the four of them, and the two dudes were so drunk that they couldn't even walk. They were, like, stumbling, you know, holding on to each other. And I went to college, so I saw a lot of this, you know, so drunk that they're just kind of using each other as crutches. So the four started hanging around. And now they were related because Maureen and Mara were sisters and Dave was Moe's husband and Ian was with Mara for almost two years. So I guess he might be considered like a common law husband. But anyway, they formed this friendship, the four of them. And a typical night for them would be the girls would go to bed. They lived near each other, but this would usually happen at one of them's house. The girls would go upstairs to bed, and the two dudes would stay downstairs and get shit-faced, which they did really often, and talk about crime. And I have a feeling this talk was half fantasy about things that they had supposedly done and half things that they'd like to do. One time, David said that he beat Maureen. I don't know if he was bragging or it was just like, like a confession time thing. And Ian said, well, I hit Myra too. And the difference here was that if this is true, Maureen was a victim and Myra was a willing participant. So like he did with Myra, Ian gave David books to read, you know, like his Marquis de Sade and Dostoevsky, etc., etc. The big difference here is Myra liked to read. She gobbled up these books and she was able to converse about them intelligently. David I'm not sure if he even understood what he was reading, let alone 
if he was able to have a discussion of it. And Maureen saw these books that Ian would give him. And she commented, she's like, you know, what the fuck is he giving you to read? What is this shit? I don't think she said those exact words, but something to that point. And the, this is just a funny little story I had to throw in. I like it because not only is it funny, but it shows you what a bitch Mara could be when she wanted to. One night it was rainy and David knocks at their door. Mara opened the door. He's standing there all wet and sad. And he's like, Maureen, you know, we had a, a fight and she ran out. Is she here? And Mara said, no, but I know where she is. She went to Blackpool. Blackpool is an English resort on the coast. And I know this because there's an amusement park there. She said, do you want me to take you? So David's like, yeah, you know. So they get in the car. Myra's driving. And she pretends that the car's making a knocking sound. She hits on or kicks with her foot on something and makes this noise. She's like, do you hear that knocking sound the car's making? So she pulls over. It's like pouring down rain, right? So David gets out and looks under the hood. And Myra drives away and leaves him standing there, stranded and soaking wet. So... She did that, yeah. Myra and Gran got a new house on the Hattersley estate in the neighborhood of Warwick Brook Avenue. So, of course, Ian comes too. And him and Gran agree to be civil with each other. They still don't really like each other, but I think for the sake of Myra, they agree to be nice. When they moved to this new place, Ian and Myra made some new friends that later on would puzzle people, writers and journalists and shrinks and people just trying to figure this out and speculate on what could be going on. There were a few different kids in the neighborhood that befriended them or that they befriended and they would take these kids on trips. The two of them were brother and sister Carol and David Waterhouse. One time they took them to the moor and Carol later would say, quote, she was quiet. He was chatty. We had a great day, unquote. And that's strange because most people said that they were the exact opposite, that Myra was the friendly, outgoing one, and Ian was kind of morose and quiet. And that's the only description of them that I've seen that was that way. A better friend they had was 11-year-old Patty Hodges. And I don't know how they met her or became connected with her, but she would ride along with Myra to go get Ian when he was visiting his parents. She just kind of hung out with them. And nobody really thought anything of it. They took her to picnics on the moor near the graves of kids that they had killed and buried. And on Christmas Eve, 1964, they took Patty with them to Holland Brown Knoll, which is a, a spot on the moor. And they sat on a hill, drank wine, and looked at the lights of the city. Then they took her home and came back. And a lot of people thought that they were grooming these kids to be victims. But I personally don't think so. They weren't very smart sometimes, as we have seen. But I really don't think they were that stupid as to kill kids that were, were literal neighbors of them. That that would be way too obvious if this kid were to disappear because their parents knew that they hung out with Ian and Myra and they gave their permission for them to go places with them. So I don't think they would be that dumb in their selection of victims. 
when I was, I don't know how old I was, little, our next door neighbors, there was one of the girls was a teenager and she worked at the local amusement park. And one time she asked if I wanted to go with her to pick up her check. I was like, yeah, I was all excited. Just, you know, a chance to go to the amusement park. We couldn't like stay around and ride anything or, but I mean, it was just cool to go with her and go in the employee's building and, and nobody thought anything of it. And I think it was something like that, just an innocent, you know, kids have a chance to hang out with their older neighbors and the neighbors happen to be serial killers, but nobody knows that yet. And I really don't think that they were ever looked at as victims or intended victims. So Christmas season comes around and Ian and Myra are in a Tesco store, I think that's a grocery store, in the neighborhood of Ancoats. And they see a poster for something called Silcox Wonder Fair. In the UK, they have these, well, I think actually all over Europe, they have these like carnivals, traveling carnivals, they call fun fairs. And they're year round. Here in the United States, we just have them in the summer. But in Europe, they have them all year round. So this one, Silcox, came to this neighborhood every Boxing Day. So they look at this poster and they look at each other and they're like, well, you know what they thought, kids. So they plan to go to the fair on Boxing Day and find another kid. And before we get into the details of that murder, I'll tell you about this victim. And this one... This was going to be 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. I have the most information on her of all the victims because I read a book by her brother, Terry. So Leslie and her family lived on Charnley Walk in the neighborhood of Ancoats. And the kids were 14-year-old Terry, 8-year-old Tommy, 10-year-old Leslie, and 4-year-old Brett. Their mom, Ann, worked in a canteen, which I think is a cafeteria, at Express Newspapers. Their biological dad, Terry, was an engineer. And Alan, who was their mother's new husband, was a long-distance lorry driver, truck driver. The family was described as poor but very happy. And Terry said in his book that after she divorced their dad and married Alan, who she met at a pub, she was the happiest he'd ever seen her. And in fact, she was like the happiest for the first time that all the kids remembered. Leslie loved to roller skate. She was described as an angel. She was lovable, would do anything for anybody. She had curly brown hair. She was the apple of her mother's eye. She was the only girl. And Terry said she always had friends around. She was supposedly shy, but gaining in confidence as she grew older. And she said she wanted to be a hairdresser when she grew up. For as young as she was, she had a strong sense of right and wrong. And she, quote, always had an air of mischief about her, end quote. This is my favorite quote about her. This is from Terry's book. He said, quote, if I brought a girlfriend home, she would remain seated at the top of the stairs having a nose, end quote. And I think that means like eavesdropping or in Pittsburgh, we would say nebbing. And I think that's so cute and funny. I just love that quote. That last Christmas of 1964, the kids thought was the best they'd ever had. They had the biggest tree ever. Their mother was the happiest she'd ever been. She had a a sherry early that day. Alan was home. Remember, he was a truck driver. So 
sometimes he will be away. Leslie got a sewing machine for Christmas, which she just absolutely loved. Alan said she was over the moon with this sewing machine, and she planned to make doll clothes with it. Terry had a bad cough and cold that Christmas, and this will be significant. And he says, quote, time was about to stop forever, end quote. The next day is known as Boxing Day, and it's a holiday in the UK, I think Canada and Australia too, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's another day of celebration, and we already know that the fun fair was coming, and this family usually had football on the telly, and they would go to the fair, usually, which was just a few blocks from their house. And the fair was a big deal. Everybody from the neighborhood was there. They had a waltzer, some kind of ride, dodgems, which is a common amusement ride that we also know as bumper cars, and the win a goldfish game. For the first time in years, Terry didn't go because he was sick. He had a runny nose, a fever. So Leslie went to the fair that afternoon. She had on a blue coat and red shoes and... According to Terry, quote, I have replayed this moment to eternity, end quote. Tommy and Leslie left, and the deal was that they were going with Mrs. Clark, who was a downstairs neighbor. I guess they lived in an apartment building or like a condo type thing. Mrs. Clark and her kids were supposed to go. Notice how I said supposed to. And they were due home for tea at five o'clock. And this is so cute, but also heartbreaking. Their mother and Alan had snowballs made, and they were hiding, and they were going to throw the snowballs at Leslie and Tommy when they came home. Terry was too sick to go to the fair. He was in bed. And unfortunately, Mrs. Clark didn't go to the fair. She just sent her daughter, Linda. So it was Linda, Tommy, and Leslie. Tommy came home from the fair, and they're like, well, where's Leslie? And he's like, well, isn't she here? And they're like, no, we thought she was with you. And um, he's like, oh, so they're like, well, okay, first, let's go down to see Mrs. Clark. And Tommy went downstairs first. And he comes back upstairs. And I guess he has this look on his face. And her mother's like, what? And he said, well, she said she was tired and didn't feel like going. And Leslie and Linda went by themselves. So Anne had a shit fit and she flew downstairs and quote unquote tore into Mrs. Clark and Alan had to restrain her. I kind of can't blame her. That's not really cool if you're an adult and you're supposed to be chaperoning kids to say, go on, I don't feel like going. Then they went door to door looking for her. They couldn't find her. And according to an 11-year-old witness, she was last seen standing by the Dodgems ride. And apparently, everybody else went to leave. And Leslie said, just give me another minute. I just want to stand here for another minute and take in the sights and smells and sounds of the fair before I leave. So Leslie's mom and Alan go back to the fairgrounds, and they're looking for her in all this crowd. And Anne said that, you know how you're at a fair or an amusement park and they have music playing over loudspeakers? She said, Leslie's favorite song called Let's Dance was playing over the speaker, she remembered. And she took this as a sign. 
And I found this song. It's actually pretty cool. And it's, it sounds like something a little 10-year-old girl would like. It's just nice and fast and happy. And I found it online. I wanted to play it, but I didn't know because songs are hard because like copyrights. But fuck it. Leslie, this is for you. I like to think that she's listening. So, not surprisingly, Anne and Alan went to the police station to report Leslie missing. Also, not surprisingly, the police weren't that motivated to look for her. They said something like, oh, she's only been gone for an hour. Just go home and wait for her. She's 10. 10, for fuck's sake. So, eventually, they brought them back to the police station and they put them in separate rooms and they question them, and they're asking them, do they beat Leslie? Do they beat each other? Like all this insinuating all kinds of stuff that, needless to say, parents in this situation didn't take too kindly to. And it is true that in most cases, I don't know the statistic, but in most cases of kids who are either missing or killed, it is sadly the parents or other family members who are responsible. Stranger abductions aren't very common. So here's what really happened. At two o'clock in the afternoon on Boxing Day, Myra drove her gran to her son Jim's house in Duncanfield. It was his birthday. And she said, okay, gran, I will come get you at 9.30 tonight. And as with every other murder, Hers and Ian's versions differ. According to Myra, she told Inspector Topping that her and Ian were at the fair. And thinking back on this, again, stupid. They were carrying a bunch of boxes. Like, who goes to a fair holding a bunch of boxes? That's just stupid. They saw Leslie by herself. Because remember, she was spotted standing by the Dodgems ride alone. And they went up to her. And either Myra said, I'll give you money if you help me with these boxes, or Myra purposely dropped a box. And Leslie, being, of course, polite, like we know that she was, picked it up for her. And she remembered that the music playing over the loudspeaker was Little Red Rooster by the Rolling Stones, who incidentally was Ian's favorite band. So, of course, Leslie follows them to the van and... She said that they had the boxes stacked around her so that nobody could see her in the van. They drove the nine miles to their house on Wardlebrook Avenue. I don't know what they said to get her in the house, and neither one of them has admitted to it. So it's a mystery of how they lured her into the house. Supposedly, she went in willingly. Ian's version is Leslie was already in the van when Myra picked him up a few streets away. That is not really significant. They got her, and they took her to their house. And if you're noticing, wait, they took her to their house? Yeah, they're taking a detour from the moor. Now, they plan to bury her on the moor, of course, with all the other ones, but this is called escalating when serial killers do that. They're getting cocky, and they're also getting bored with their routine of what they're doing. And they want to branch out into riskier and more disgusting activities. 
So Ian decides that he, we know he likes to take pornographic pictures, and he decides that their next victim will star in some pictures. So he sets up his photography equipment in the spare bedroom. So all this stuff equipment is set up in the bedroom. They bring Leslie in the house. Mara said she went upstairs with Ian. Again, I, I have no idea what he said to get her to go upstairs with him, but Mara said she was in the kitchen feeding the dogs, and she heard Leslie yell. Also, Ian, you know how he is with his tape recorders. He has his tape recorder on, and it's hidden under the bed, and I think I mentioned that there's tape of this incident. It's not public. The British police never released it, but he made a tape of this. So, according to Mara, she goes upstairs, and Ian and Leslie are there, and it's probably better if I tell you what's on the tape. It just kind of tells its own story. A big warning. Now, I, obviously, I don't have it, but I have the transcript, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just read you the enough of it so that you can get an idea what was going on. This is very hard to listen to, so if you want to skip ahead, probably about five minutes, that might be wise. Now, this is the transcript, and I'll tell you things that it says, and then if I have to describe something, I'll tell you that. And it starts with, Ian says, get out of the fucking road. Get in the fucking basket. I have no idea what that means, who he's talking to or what basket. I don't know. It says you hear a door banging, then heavy footsteps, then somebody blows into a microphone. More footsteps with a quiet woman's voice. That would obviously be Myra. Then it says there's light whispered conversation which I'm assuming is between Ian and Mara. Then Leslie says, Don't. Mom. Ah. And then a high-pitched scream. Mara says, Shut up. Leslie. Oh, please. Oh, help. Mara. Shh. Shut up. Now, Leslie screams loud. And this goes on for a while. Leslie screams. Mara says, Shut up. Leslie keeps crying and screaming. You hear them keep saying, both Ian and Myra, put it in your mouth, put it in your mouth. They're talking about a gag. They want her to put a gag in her mouth. And this goes on for, the tape lasts 16 minutes. A lot of this is them trying to get her to put this gag in her mouth. And they're both screaming at her, put it in, put it in. Leslie says, can I just tell you something? I must tell you something. Please take your hands off me for a minute. Please, please, mommy, please. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I can't breathe. I can't, dad. Will you take your hands off me? And then she's like, why? Why, why are, what are you trying to do with me? And Ian says, I just want some photographs. That's all. You know, like this is an everyday occasion. What are you crying about? Leslie says, don't undress me, will you? It hurts me. I want to see mummy, honest to God. I swear on the Bible. I've got to go because I'm going out with my mama. Leave me, please. Help me, will you? Then this just keeps going on, this, the same thing. And Ian asked her what is her name. She says, Leslie. Leslie what? Anne. What's your second name? Westford, she says, and that's not her last name. She says, I have to get home before 8 o'clock. I got to, 
or I'll get killed if I don't, honest to God. And you hear footsteps clicking, and that's Mara coming in and out of the room. Then you hear music at the end of the tape. And remember, this is the day after Christmas. So it's Jolly St. Nicholas and then the little drummer boy. Then you hear three loud cracks. And we find out later that these cracks are Ian opening his tripod for the camera. Remember, tripod has three legs. Click, click, click. That's what that was. And I want to draw your attention to something here. Notice that Leslie keeps calling them mom and dad. And most of the people that have written about this case think that she's trying to appeal to their, I guess, parental instincts by calling them that. But personally, I'm going to disagree because somebody said that she started calling them that at the fair. And I know Ian and Myra aren't a very good source, but I also read somewhere that it was common for kids at that time to call older people mom or dad. And I guess it would be similar to people calling older people like ma'am or sir. I don't know. It's foreign to me, but I just can't see a little girl who's being tortured calling her torturers mom and dad as in her parents. I'm just not getting that. But I mean, you can obviously interpret that however you want. So the pictures are, needless to say, very disturbing. There were nine of them that the police found, and they're of Leslie naked with a scarf around the bottom of her face, supposedly to hide her identity. And she was in various poses, like kneeling, her arms outstretched, and the most disturbing is her leaning over a chair posed like she's praying. Myra, lying sack of shit that she was, claims that while this was all going on, she was in the bathroom because this was too horrible she couldn't watch. And Ian told her to run a bath, which she did this. This is true. Then she went back in, and lo and behold, there's Leslie dead, face down on the bed, with blood coming from her legs. Ian said, no, Myra was involved in the entire assault. She straddled Leslie, took part in the assault, and insisted on strangling Leslie herself with a silk cord while Ian held her down. Then, according to Ian, they would go to clubs or bars, pubs, whatever, and Myra would purposely take this. I'm imagining it to be like the, um, you know, like a maybe a silk robe or satin robe has like the tie around the waist. I'm thinking it's like that, or that's how I picture it. And he said Myra would bring it and take it out and play with it, like kind of either taunting him or remembering or something like that. And the police who looked at these pictures and heard the tape said that because the little drummer boy was on there, a lot of them got really triggered by it whenever they would hear it. And I can understand that. And they asked them, was that a, a record or what was that? And Ian said it was a radio, you know, a transistor radio. And he was talking to Alan Keatley, the author, and he said, quote, this is Ian, obviously, Henley can kill in cold blood or in a rage, end quote. So we don't really know the details of exactly who did what during that, but 
you have the pictures and the tape, and they kind of tell you what happened and that it was horrible. And it's not real clear. Well, I'll tell you what Leslie's autopsy report says later. But who killed her? Again, they each say it was the other. And they had this crazy plan that they were going to sell these pictures. And I'm like, who the fuck do you think is going to buy pictures of a naked, tied up, 10-year-old girl? Like, what planet are you on? Supposedly, even Ian admitted later that the pictures were too graphic or too disturbing to sell. Professor Malcolm said of this murder that it was, quote, carried out in a systematic, sadistic manner, end quote. And if you compare it to the other three, I think it definitely was the most planned out, you know, with the pictures or the the camera and the equipment set up. And I would say definitely the most sadistic. At the trial, Dr. David G., the coroner, ruled out ligature strangulation as a cause of death. But Ian insisted that this cord was used. So again, it's not clear. So then after Leslie dies, oh, I forgot to tell you the purpose of the bath. They wash her in the tub to get rid of any forensic that might be on her, like um, dog hair, because, you know, two dogs live there, or fibers that can be traced back to their house. So Myra goes out and checks that the street is empty. She's like, okay, the coast is clear. Then Ian carried Leslie. I'm sure she was wrapped in something. Puts her in the back of the van. And they already had a spot selected on the moor near Pauline Reed where they they were going to bury her. It's snowing pretty hard. And they start out and they realize that the snow is going to be a problem. It's They have to slow down a lot because of the snow. And they realize that they're not going to be able to go all the way to the moor which probably has uh, even worse roads than like the main roads. And this is the crazy part. Well, it's all crazy, but this is like the stupid part. Remember, Myra has to go get her grandmother. And apparently they don't have phones. So they go home, put Leslie back on the bed, drive to Uncle Jim's house where Grandma is. It's 11.15 at night now. And... Myra tells her grandmother that the roads are too bad to take you back home. So they have an argument, her and and, uh, Gran and Uncle Jim, and they're like, wait a minute, you just drove here to tell me that the roads are too bad to take me back home with you while you're already apparently driving back home. Like, what is wrong with you? And she couldn't very well say, well, Gran, we just have this little dead girl on, on our bed. That's all. We don't want you to see her. I don't know what she said. I think she just kind of said no and left, and Gran had to sleep on the floor. So because Leslie's on the bed, Ian and Myra slept on the uh, couch downstairs, and of course, they've got to celebrate with their wine. So the next day, they're up at dawn, and they took Leslie back to the moor. They dig a shallow grave because there's a lot of snow, and we're going to see later that her grave is pretty shallow. And so they put her in, and the van's pulled over, and a cop pulls up beside Myra. And he's like, you know, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm drying out my spark plugs. What? 
Is that even a thing? Seriously, tell me if it is, because it doesn't make any sense to me. So in a newspaper article in 1994, Mara is quoted as saying, I looked up and said, now I know there is no God. Now I am sure. So they go to get Grandma at 1030. And you know how they always associate a song with a murder. For whatever reason, this one is Girl Don't Come by Sandy Shaw, neither of which I've ever heard of. Ian developed the pictures of Leslie. And for, remember I told you about Patty, their little friend, the neighbor. For whatever reason, she stopped hanging around with them sometime in 1965. They weren't sure why. Could have been just nothing. So Myra, years later, would write to a journalist regarding this murder. Quote, I just find it hard to believe that I have been such a cruel, cruel bastard. End quote. And to another one, other journalist, she said, quote, The girl shouldn't have been out at that time of night. End quote. It was four o'clock in the afternoon, Myra, and you shouldn't have kidnapped her. Talk about blame the victim. So this new year comes, 1965, and Ian and Myra are getting a little bored with their crimes. Things are getting too easy. They're getting complacent. They're getting away with everything. There's no, I guess, sense of danger or excitement anymore, and they want to mix things up. So here's a quote that Ian told Alan Keatley, quote, Myra and I extensively discussed and researched the psychology and logistical mechanics of creating a small race war. However, we had no political or racial motive. To us, it was simply an existential challenge, an end in itself. In tandem, we also discussed and researched the existential challenge of derailing an express train, end quote. Can you believe these people? Most people are like, on board. Uh, do you want to go to a movie? Or I, I don't know, but how about we derail a train? I'm, it's another level of just wow. Wow. So in April of 1965, David and Maureen had a baby named Angela. Well, they had her a few months ago, but she died of an illness in April. So as a result, those two got even closer with Ian and Myra. David was lazy, and he, I don't know if he worked, I mean, I suppose he did something, but he wasn't real interested in working. And Ian saw the opportunity to try to talk him into committing an armed robbery. And these, these people, Ian and Myra, and now David, all this talk, that's, that's all they have been, is talking about robbing this and robbing that. Let's rob a bank. Let's rob whatever. They've never done it. They've killed people, but they've never actually, and they never would actually rob anything or anybody. In July, David and Maureen moved a few minutes away from Ian and Mara. And Ian wasn't happy about this because these two... David and Moe fought all the time, and Moe would come over and want to see Myra to get, because that's her big sister, she wants to talk and she wants comforted. And to Ian, Mr. Heartless Psychopath, this is like an intrusion. And he told Alan Keatley that he wished he'd have killed David 
But Myra talked him out of it because that is her sister's husband. So we're getting to the end of the line for them. September. The two sisters were in bed and Ian and David are down there talking and getting drunk. And the talk turns to robbery again, as usual. And they set up a tentative plan to rob the gas and electric shop. And this is where people go to pay bills. So they know that there's money there. So you know how, well, I've never been drunk, but I've seen plenty of drunk people. And when they get drunk, they say stuff that they wouldn't normally say. So he's he's drunk and Ian asks, Dave, are you capable of murder? I've done it. I've done three or four. You don't really believe me, do you? Their bodies are buried on the moors. You and Maureen were sitting near one of them. And I have a feeling that it's never really recorded, but Dave was dumb, but I think he thought that Ian was bullshitting him, which I think most people would. Most people would be like, yeah, right, dude. Sure you did. And after they were arrested, Ian claimed that he just said this, trying to impress David. October 2nd, a few days later, they're drunk again. Imagine that. And they get back to this topic of Ian's like, you know, I've killed people and, you know, believe me. And, and he seems to be almost kind of, I don't know if, if upset or, or hurt or disappointed that David doesn't seem to believe him. And he's like, well, I have pictures to prove it. And he says, quote, I'll do another one. You don't believe me. It will be done. I'm not due for another one for three or four months, but this won't count, end quote. So they're planning this robbery, and David comes to see them on October 5th with books that Ian had lent him, and these would be by the Marquis de Sade and Mein Kampf. And you'll see noted in a, a lot about this case that Ian was real crazy about this book and Nazis and so forth. And I think I mentioned in the first episode, he was mildly interested, mainly in Hitler as a politician and like the hold he had over people. So he did have Mein Kampf, he read it, but he wasn't like obsessed with it, like it's been made out. So Ian packed these books in a suitcase. And in this suitcase, he puts the tape of them torturing Leslie and a recording of The Goon Show, that's the comedy radio show, and a tape on Hitler that was on the radio. Also, two cautious, remember those are those like nightstick type things, the, the weapons, a black wig, books on quote-unquote sexual perversions, gun cartridges, and letters. And there's two suitcases with these things in them. And he said to Myra, if David chickens out, I'm going to have to kill him. Later that night, they go to Manchester Station and put the cases in the luggage locker. The next day, Wednesday, they go to work as usual. Then they come home. Ian took the dogs, Lassie and Puppet, out for a walk. And he passes David and Moe's place. So Dave calls down to him from the window. And he's like, hey, we got an eviction notice because we owe rent. And, you know, he's like, can I borrow some money? And Ian's like, no, we're broke too. And Ian said to Alan Keatley, quote, I told Smith I would try to get some money for him by rolling a queer. 
This was 60s parlance for enticing a homosexual with the promise of sex and then robbing him of his cash. He would be unlikely to report the incident to the police because homosexual acts were illegal then, end quote. And just as an aside, you may also hear of prostitutes or sex workers, which in a lot of places is also illegal. They'll do the same thing. They'll hook up with a customer, and when they get the chance, they'll rob the customer. And said customer can't very well go to the police and say, hey, a sex worker robbed me. And it's the same concept. So let's meet our fifth and final victim. This would be the oldest. This was 17-year-old Edward Evans. He was tall and thin. He lived on Addison Street in the neighborhood of Ardwick with his mother, Edith, and his dad, John. He had a brother and sister. His sister was also named Edith, and his brother was Alan. His dad worked as a lift attendant. I think that's somebody who operates an elevator. And Ed had a good job as an apprentice machinist at AEI Electric Works. So on this day, October 6th, he planned to go with his friend Michael to see a soccer game. This was Manchester United versus Helsinki at the Old Trafford Soccer Stadium. He had on a white shirt and jeans and his best suede jacket. He liked to go out places, pubs, so forth, nightlife, you know, enjoy himself. He's young. And his parents worried about him. And he would always tell them, I can handle any trouble. And his mom, Edith, is quoted as saying, Edward went out between 6.15 and 6.30 p.m. I didn't see him alive again. So he leaves the house at 6.30 to meet his friend Michael in a place called Auntie's Bar on Oxford Road. Michael never showed up, so Ed went to the city center alone to watch the soccer game by himself. Between 10 and 10.30 that night... He was at Central Station, and some say he went to the bar, the buffet bar, for a drink, but the buffet bar was closed, so he went into a gay bar just to get a drink. And others say, remember way back, I think it was episode one, I told you that Ian would go out and meet a random dude and have sex with him, and one of the places he went was in Manchester Station. Another story says that that's really what Ed was doing, was hanging around there to hook up with a random dude. But that version kind of makes more sense because he left with Ian. Mara and Ian leave their place, and Mara would later say that she told him, you know, you're going to get us caught. You're being reckless because he wanted to involve David Smith. She's like, I don't trust him. He's young and he's stupid. You know, you're asking for trouble. Leave him out of this. I said before about Ian was getting too cocky, too self-assured. So Myra's sitting outside in the van. Ian goes into the train station. We don't know the details exactly what was said, but he does approach Eddie that's what he went by, is Eddie. And he asked him, do you want to come back to my place for a drink? And supposedly that was code for, do you want to go have sex? And Eddie says, sure. So they come out to the car, which, of course, Myra's driving. And Ian's like, this is my sister. Eddie gets in the car. Nothing 
unusual, no sense that anybody's in any kind of danger. They go back to Myra and Ian's place. And if you've been paying attention, I'm sure you realize that Ian has no intention of Eddie leaving that house alive. What happens is Ian tells Myra, go get Dave. So she leaves. And remember, Maureen and David only live a few minutes away. So this must have been a mighty quick roll in the hay. Eddie and Ian have sex consensually. And I don't understand all the, this was like a prearranged use of signals. And I don't really understand why they did this, but Myra goes to Maureen and David's place. Maureen was in bed and she said to David, the street lights aren't working. Would you walk me home in the dark? And he says, sure. I don't know if he realized what he was getting into or what was going on. I don't think so. So they get back to Ian and Myra's. And keep in mind, through all of this, Gran is upstairs. And it's later at night. She's probably in bed. But before they go into the house, Myra says to Dave, okay, wait for my signal. I'm going to flash the lights on and off. When you see that, knock on the door. So she goes in. Ian and uh, Eddie have finished their business in the living room. Myra flashes the lights and David knocks on the door. Ian opens the door and greeted David like he's surprised to see him and says, oh, you must have come for those miniature wine bottles, right? And David's like, um, yeah, I guess. So they go in. Myra goes into the kitchen to feed the dogs conveniently. And she hears a loud crash from the living room. I don't know the layout of this place. But she looks and she sees Ian and Eddie fighting. And David is standing by the door watching, probably open-mouthed and shocked. So Myra yells at David, Dave, help him. And Gran yells from upstairs, what's going on? Which is, is, of course, a legitimate question. And Myra says, nothing, I just knocked something over. And this must have satisfied Gran who went back to bed or we don't hear anything more out of her. Ian conveniently has a hatchet hidden nearby. So he takes that out, and he's busy whacking Eddie on the head with this axe. And Myra said the, the walls were getting just spattered with blood. And she said she saw Ian standing there holding the axe in his hand, and he's kind of like straddling Eddie, who's at this point like half on and half off of the couch. And apparently during all this struggle, Ian sprained an ankle and he's like hopping around on his leg. But it turns out Eddie wasn't dead yet. So Ian took an electrical cord, wrapped it around his neck and finished him off. Ian commands David to help him do something with the body because Eddie is dead at this point. He said, help me carry him to the car because again plans to bury him at the moor as usual, but he's too heavy for them to get him outside. Remember, this is a 17-year-old. This isn't a little kid like they're used to. So they wrap him in plastic and carry him upstairs and put him in the spare bedroom where they had Leslie. And the three of them, Ian, Myra, and David, were cleaning till three o'clock in the morning. And 
I mean, you can just imagine if you've killed somebody by hitting them in the head with an axe, what a mess it would be. And Ian made some kind of comment like, oh, this is the messiest one yet. So finally, David's like, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'll come back tomorrow. And we still have, you remember he had, they had a baby who died. It's like, we still have her pram. It's like a stroller. And maybe we can use that as a kind of dolly to help wheel him out to the van. And Ian and Myra are like, okay. So Dave tries to nonchalantly saunter out of the house. And he's terrified. He's like, holy shit, I just saw them kill somebody. Or at least he saw Ian do the killing. And Myra watched and helped him clean up. And he's in panic mode. He's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? So he goes home. Maureen's in bed. And he's so upset. He runs into the bathroom. And he's violently and loudly puking in the bathroom. And, of course, this wakes up Maureen. And she comes and comforts him. She's like, oh, you know, what's wrong? And he's like, I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't there. I don't know what was said. But he's like, holy shit, I just saw Ian kill some dude. And he's, you can just imagine. And he's like, we have to go to the police. He was so afraid of the repercussions of Ian and Myra seeing him call the police. They didn't have a phone. So they had to go to what you call a phone box. And those are those, did you ever see pictures of those cool looking red things? Those old fashioned, I don't even know if they still have them, but the ones we had here in the United States were boring. Like you would go in, it was called a phone booth, and it actually had a little door on it for privacy. You could slide your, lo- your little door closed and then make your call, dial the phone back in the old days. Well, in the UK, they're fancy. They're like a pretty red. But anyway, enough with the phone booth lesson. They waited a little bit. And then they arm themselves with a screwdriver and a kitchen knife. And both of them go to one of these phone boxes. And David calls the police and tells them that he witnessed a murder at Ian and Myra's house. So shortly after that, Ian and Myra are in their house. Gran, I guess, is still upstairs. And Ian is in the living room writing a note to their boss, Tommy, excusing him from work that day because he sprained his ankle fighting with Eddie while he was killing him. And they hear a knock on the back door, and Myra opens the door, and there is a bread delivery dude in a bread uniform. And the guy goes, is your husband in? She said, I haven't got a husband. And he said, I'm a police superintendent, and I have reason to believe there is a man in the house. She said, there's no man here. He said, I have received a report that an act of violence took place here last night, and we are investigating it. She goes, there's nothing wrong here. This would be Superintendent Talbot. And he just walks past her, kind of shoves her aside. And Myra knows that they're done for, and she's like, he's in the other room in bed. Well, Talba goes in the living room and sees Ian sitting on the couch. And Myra said later, quote, I'll never forget his face when I took the police into the living room the morning after the murder of Edward Evans. It was expressionless, as it often was, 
but I saw him almost shrink before my eyes, helpless and powerless, just as the victims had been. But now, thank God, there would be no more victims. It was all over, and I felt free, end quote. Oh, God, Mara. She's like a, I don't know what, soap opera. And Ian had actually planned for this, for them being caught. What he planned to do to the surprise of probably nobody is go out shooting and then commit suicide by cop. He had a gun, and he supposedly, as soon as he heard the cops at the door, reached under the couch for it. But then he was like, oh, shit, it's upstairs. So we know that he planned to try to shoot the officers and then shoot himself, but that didn't work out. The cops, of course, search the house, and it doesn't take them too long to come across the locked door, which contained the dead body of Eddie. And the police are like, um, would you please unlock this door? And Myra said, well, the key's at my job, and, you know, I'm not going to go get it. And they're like, well, we'll take you to work because we need to get in there. So Ian goes, you had better give him the key. A fight got out of hand last night. So he's using the old, we had an argument, and I ended up axing him in the head, and here he is now wrapped in plastic on the bed, which, needless to say, the cops didn't buy. So Ian's led away in handcuffs, and by this time there's neighbors, because the police didn't bring just like one or two. There's like 50 of them there. Grand's up, of course, wondering what the hell is going on in my house, and they put Ian in the police car. So Myra and Gran go to a neighbor's house with Lassie and Papa the dogs. They can't go back to the house because now it's, it's a crime scene. And a reporter named Clive Whistle somehow found Myra at Gran's, and he's like, you know, can I talk to you? This is the first person to ever interview Myra, and he said, quote, I sat down and basically had a 20-minute chat with Myra Henley, not realizing in any shape or form the enormity of what was about to be revealed. As far as the police were concerned, it was an open and shut case, a straightforward murder. They had got the bad guy who had admitted it, and he was in custody. I got her name out of her and asked what she knew about the killing. I asked whether she knew the dead man, and all I got was silence. After a while, I changed tack and asked her boyfriend's name. She said Ian Brady. I asked what happened, and I was just stonewalled. After 20 minutes, I got up and left. A few hours later, an autopsy was done on Eddie. His cause of death was a fractured skull with 14 scalp lacerations, and they concluded that the ligature used to strangle him had also contributed to his death. So we're going to break there. And the next episode is going to be a big one because we're going to finish this up. We got their trial and all their years in prison. And there's a lot that goes on. Um, A lot of conversations that I have, both of them, and interviews with the victims' families, what happened to them, and of course, psychology. So I don't know if it's going to be out Thursday or not as usual. Might have to wait a while, but I will definitely be busily working on it. So I'll see you whenever I get this up. Class dismissed.